Welcome to Not Your Pastor's Pulpit, the place where ordinary people proclaim an extraordinary Jesus. Alex, we are back with our second sermon, this one from Mahali of the Method Theology Podcast. Jason, I'm going to come clean, lay all my cards out on the table here. Let me hear it, buddy. So when you put the feelers out there on social media, like we're doing this pulpit thing, you showed me this sermon in particular. You said you have to listen to it. You have to listen to her story. And I listened to it in my basement with you, and I was on the verge of tears. And it's one of the best things I've heard thus far in 2017 that is, like, encouraging, but also, like, encouraging me to, like, love Jesus more because of who he is and what he's done for us. She has this phrase, and you'll pick up on it, listener, that she repeats a few times in her story or sermon, whatever you want to call it. And it's so, it's like, I want to hijack that phrase and write a book Well, or it's like, it's nothing you haven't heard before, but her delivery of it oh my gosh. is perfect. So good. But Holly... We love you. Thank you so much for your submission. It was a huge encouragement to us. And without further ado, preach it. I grew up a Southern Baptist preacher's daughter. I tell people all the time that the church hurt me a lot as a kid, and that is true. But I don't think it's as simple as the church failed or Christians are so unlike their Jesus. I thought being a preacher's daughter meant being perfect and the best at everything. The ladies in the church wanted me to be well-behaved and soft-spoken, ladylike. I was supposed to love Awanis. I was supposed to shyly sing my church solo and then go sit down. More than that, though, it was something bigger, something I have only recently come to realize. Parents discipline their children, all, all good parents do. My discipline, however wasn't just correction for breaking rules. My discipline was correction for not living up to expectations. But this discipline didn't come from my parents. My discipline came from every adult in the church, all of whom treated me as if they expected me to already know Jesus at two, five, eight years old, and that the Jesus I was supposed to know was exactly who they thought he was. The disapproving looks when I did something wrong were not looks of someone control this child. They were looks of what a disappointment you are as our preacher's daughter. And how disappointed must Jesus be in your failures? My dad left the church when I was eight, after my mom passed away from cancer and a lot of other things happened, including, but not limited to, a seven years delayed reaction to a church split and a remarriage shortly after my mom's death. So... I was technically only a preacher's daughter for eight years, barely more than a quarter of my life, but it changed everything. And see, the problem also was not with the people, because people are people, and they're always going to be wrong about something. They are always going to sin, and they're always going to hurt you. They just will. The problem was the fact that I was born into a fundamental misunderstanding of who Jesus is, what he wants from me, and how he loves I spent the first 20 years of my life trying to please him, trying to live according to the rules and be a good little worker bee. And as a result, I spent at least 12 of those 20 years in deep depression, becoming more and more self-destructive as I got older, waking up on top of bars at 19 and 20, getting held for ransom in a cocaine deal, narrowly avoiding getting arrested for possession of marijuana and a DUI, and so on and so forth. Use your imagination. 
A good way to make my ultimate point is to explain that in all of this, amidst all these mistakes and sin, I turn 29 next month, and I'm still a virgin. Because if nothing else, at the very least, I had that. If nothing else, at the very least, Jesus would be happy with that part of me. At the very least, that part of me wouldn't be worthless. I met Jesus when I was 20. I'd spent a couple of years absolutely losing my mind trying to figure out what I believed, and one day, I just realized I was miserable, and that I couldn't fix it, and that I wasn't supposed to be miserable, and that if I kept traveling down the path I was going, I was going to die, either by suicide or stupid life decision. So I sat in my truck and I cried. I wept for probably an hour, begging God to fix it, begging him to make me happy and to let me sing. I don't, I don't even think I wanted to be happy. I think I just didn't want to be miserable anymore. I, I told him I was his and that I would do whatever he asked of me if he would just fix it. And initially I got very, very lucky. I woke up the next morning grateful I had. And if you've never been in depression, it's difficult to understand what that means. But basically, it means I'd spent every morning for the preceding 12 years waking up in chronic pain and wishing that I hadn't woken up. Ephesians 5.14 says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. But the message version says, wake up from your sleep, climb out of your coffins, and Christ will show you the light. I'd been living in a coffin. I spent every second of every day planning the next words that would come out of my mouth, making sure I was pretty enough, smart enough, funny enough, charming enough, trying to be good enough as a singer, a human, a woman. I woke up angry furious and dreading everything that laid before me. My soul was dying. And my God woke it up, ripped it out of the ground, and thrust it into the sunshine. He showed it the colors of the trees I'd miss driving to the same highway to work every day. He taught me that the people I waited on every day had lives they returned to when they left my section. He showed me the Psalms and told me he loved me. He showed me my pain my unresolved grief, and my anger. He showed me the light, the joy, the beauty, the vulnerability required in being loved by him. He scared me. And I ran away. I literally got on my knees one night a few months later and told God to, quote, back the fuck off because I can't handle this shit. See, I'd been taught I had to fight the battles. I'd been taught I was expected to bring something to the table. So when God started the healing on my past, I shut that door. I closed off the intimacy. I stopped seeking the things God was trying to show me and work through with me. My mom's death, sexual assault by my ex, the physical abuse, my time spent in depression, the grandeur of the God of the Bible that absolutely blew my mind. I ran. I saw it and I ran. And almost immediately, I started drinking like a fish. I mean, my roommate and I actually wrote a novel called Chimney Fish in that time. Smoke like a chimney, drink like a fish. Yeah. The thing about my early relationship with God is that he basically controverted everything I'd ever known about him. My whole life, 
other people got a word or got the spirit or heard from the Lord, but it was never you, never you. And it was never me. I was a worker bee, a proletariat, if you will. And God, the second I asked him to help, stepped in and he shut down all of it. I slept and he told me he loved me in my dreams. He would describe my journey from legalism to faith in my dreams. He would give me visions declaring the ridiculousness of fear of the devil and of sin. He would speak to me as I read the word, especially Psalms. And we chilled in Psalms. And when I told him to back off, he didn't. But I did. And I put up a massive wall. And all of a sudden, I was a six-year-old in a small southern church with no understanding of who God was. So I started drinking because the only time I heard from God anymore was when I was drunk because that was when the wall was down. The DUI I mentioned earlier, that happened after I became a Christian. Around the same time, I almost killed myself. The night of that DUI, I drank an entire Long Island iced tea pre-made five pack in about two to three hours. And just to keep track, that is a pint of vodka, a pint of rum, a pint of triple sec, a pint of gin, and a pint of tequila. Then I went out with my roommate and drank some more. I have no idea how I didn't get alcohol poisoning. She drove to the bar, and I took a cab home, because I didn't want to be late for Bible study in the morning. And then I realized I had her car keys in my purse. So I did the <coughs> responsible thing and got in my truck to take her her keys. It was a straight shot to downtown from our apartment, and I blacked out, got lost, and ran out of gas. A good-willed passersby um, called the police to come and get me. The only reason I got out of that DUI is because, because the cop put me in the backseat of his car and gave me the chance to call my roommate before hauling me off to jail. And after he told her she had 15 minutes to come get me from the other side of Nashville, which was at least half hour away, they hung up and I thanked him for giving me a second chance because of how it would have affected my father if he'd thought I was out drinking all the time to, to this extent. And apparently, this particular policeman was in the middle of a bad divorce and hadn't seen his daughter in weeks. It might have been months. I don't remember. But he missed her terribly. And he told me his story. And as he started to cry, my wasted self asked if I could pray for him. And he said, I would appreciate that. And as I said, I will, my roommate's headlights showed up in the rearview mirror. I still pray for that officer and his family. The next day, I figured I only got one freebie. So I quit drinking for a while. And as a result, I had to face everything I'd been running from. About a month later, I spent the night talking myself out of suicide. And then I called my dad and told him I needed to move into a spare room in South Carolina. After I moved back, I spent a lot of time in Isaiah. I had so much doubt, given how much legalism I'd been fed, that I could have possibly been told the truth my whole life. I mean, what right did I have to believe that God had chosen me? Such a failure to know the truth. How in the hell could I be so blessed as to have been born into a family that taught me the one true God from day one? I'd spent my whole life judged and condemned, made fun of in school, ostracized at church, failing at my dreams, and then I read Isaiah. 
Isaiah 51 opens by saying, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. I read Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love, and he will exult over you with loud singing. And I read passages like Mark 5, where he heals two females, one of whom he invites to share the gospel through her experience, and to one of whom he says, after raising her back from the dead, Talitha Kumi, which means, little girl, I say unto you, arise. Talitha was a term only used by fathers for their most favorite daughters. And Jesus had likely never met this girl, but he valued her as his precious, most favorite daughter, because she was his from the day she was born. She was his. The difference Jesus made in my life, the thing that set him apart, is that he bothered to tell me who he was, to fight for me, to pursue me. He saw me where I was and considered me worth my issues and my brokenness and my inadequacies. He is the God who sat with me while I was hammered on the church balcony during a monastery and told me he loved me. He is a God who giggles at dumb jokes with his children while they're making puns driving down the interstate. He is a father who doesn't just love us, he likes us. He wants us. He is emphatically passionate about each of us, every single one of us individually. The way you like to overdraw your lip liner, or the way you dab at your dad swearing in. The way you just don't understand punctuation, or how hard you try to flip pancakes in the frying pan when you have a day off midweek. He loves how easily you laugh, and how fascinated you are by nuanced development of characters in otherwise poorly written sitcoms. He loves your determination to not be bought by a lie. He loves you. He likes you. He wants you. He loves me. He likes me. And he wants me. That's what makes him different. And that's how he made a difference in my life. like to share a sermon or story about Jesus on Not Your Pastor's Pulpit, you can do so by following three simple guidelines. Keep it short, keep it Jesus, and love others. If you would like to learn more about our submission process, please go to notyourpastorspodcast.com backslash pulpit or listen to episode 26. Until next week, go in peace, my friends. Priority.